welcome to the Happiness Injection a Special. It's a recording from the 2019 Happiness Festival that we held in Birmingham in June 2019. This guy is a massive inspiration to me. I heard him speak first about 10 years ago. He actually knows Sir Ken Robinson personally. And the other thing about him, he name drops and I love it because he has actually, in fact, I'm not going to tell you because hopefully it's in the recording, but just wait till the end because it's worth hearing who he hangs with. He's Richard Gerber, everyone. Afternoon. Who, uh, who spent lunch outside? Who turned round and said, better make the most of this? Who then turned round, phoned their partners and said, get the burgers out, we're barbecuing, but not the value ones? Look, I am here. Shani said to me, everyone will have eaten. It's going to be hot, they're going to be tired. Can we have half an hour where people can just relax and have a sleep? So here I am. Look, I've got 28 minutes or something with you, and uh, I thought after lunch the best thing to do was to talk a little bit about coffee. So this, this is the world's first Starbucks in Seattle. I don't know if any of you have been there. It's quite a mecca, I would say, for coffee lovers. But this is Starbucks. So I'm there on a day off, right? I'm working in Seattle. And I don't know what it is. I think it must just be my age. I've now got a daughter who's 23. And thank you. I know I don't look old enough. That's very kind of you. You weren't supposed to laugh at that bit. Um, And as my daughter's got older, as her father, I think it's a dad-daughter thing. I have become obsessed with trying to be my daughter's hero. So what I've decided to do now when I travel around the place is to take Instagram pictures of cool places so that I can hashtag my daughter and she thinks I'm a groovy dad. And just using the word groovy proves to you just how badly I fail. But there you go. So I'm in Seattle and I think this is going to be great. I'm going to go to the world's first Starbucks. And I queue up. Anyway, it turns out that every other dad in Seattle has got the same idea as me. Because the queue is a mile and a half long. But I love my daughter. So I'm ploughing through. So I'm stood there in the queue and everything's great and people are sharing stories and talking about coffee and talking about Starbucks. Anyway, I get after an hour to where I take this picture. And at this point, my mood changed. Because I could hear what was going on inside the coffee shop. Now, what was going on inside the coffee shop was like urban poetry. There were like slam poets in there, ordering drinks from the baristas. And they're ordering, well, God only knows what they're ordering. They're ordering 15 varieties of a hot liquid. I mean, who knew how many types of milk there were? 
soya almond, half and half, full fat, no fat, and then they go into the caramel uh, syrup, but they want caramel syrup with no sugar. And then every one of them finished this kind of urban poetry with like a full stop of a statement. They'd all go blah, 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 latte, latte grande, coffee, something, frappe. And then they'd go, and I want it extra hot. What the f*** is extra hot? It's bloody coffee, right? So, I'm standing there at this point in mild panic because I am a simple guy. You're going to learn this very quickly about me. I drink coffee black. That's it. And I don't even know the different names for the size of the cups. So I'm listening to these urban poets giving it 15 varieties with extra hot. And because we're in America, and they're all bloody happy there, right? What's happening is people are ordering, and then you're hearing, Woo! Yeah! Get in! Man! Woo! And I'm thinking, in a minute, I'm going to walk in there and say, Can I have a cup of black coffee, please, in a cup this size? Anyway, I got performance anxiety, not for the first time in my life, and um, I ran away. <laughs> Never made it in. But as I was running away, I was thinking to myself, when was it that everything became so complicated? When was it that we started to believe that the only stuff of value had to be complex? Think about it for a minute. It's a really interesting thought, right? We live in a world where the mythology is, and particularly as adults, and this is where I'm going to come to in a minute, particularly as adults, we're desperate to prove our value. And so what happens is we concoct complexity. And there, then we flock to people who sound clever and complex. It happens in every field. It happens in the health sector, it happens in education, it happens in the corporate world. But actually, when you strip it back, as we heard so powerfully and brilliantly from Paul and Andy this morning, the truth is, it just isn't. One of the things that I've spent my life thinking about, because I was a primary school teacher and then a primary school head teacher for the best part of 20 years, and the one thing any of us that know, who have been privileged enough to work with young kids, is they've got the bloody answer. Let me see if I can show you what I mean. Isn't that beautiful? I don't have many memories of when I was seven years of age. But I do have one. And it was the summer of 1976. And again, I know, thank you, I don't look that old. I was seven years old, and it was the best summer we've ever had. It was a proper, full-on heat wave. My mum and dad were sharing a bath, not because of the heat wave, which I found out later in life. But anyway, I remember being in my urban primary school, and I remember one afternoon in the summer, in the heat wave, coming back from lunch, having eaten, and why the hell did they do this to us as kids? The temperature outside was like 34 degrees. We had full-on, I remember that day, fish fingers, mashed potato, and then some steamed pudding and custard. 
Oh, and there was cabbage, right? And we're back in the classroom, a group of seven-year-olds. God, for those of you that have never been in a classroom after lunch on a hot day with a room full of seven-year-olds. Just to give you an idea of what it's like, if you all now lifted your left buttock, and then you lifted your right buttock, you'd know where we were going to at this point, right? And we were there, we were knackered. We'd had cabbage and hot steam pudding. And our teacher, Mrs. Fraser, I love Mrs. Fraser. Mrs. Fraser did the register, and we all went, here, yeah, hmm, uh. And then she said, we should be doing maths now, kids. <laughs> You've lived it. And she said, do you want to do maths now? And we're all, she said, or, because this was in the days before risk assessments and health and safety, and look, we're here. Isn't it miraculous? Right? And she said, or would you rather go down across the road to the park? And we're all going, the park! Apart from Jennifer. There's always a Jennifer in every bloody class. I want to do maths! God, we hated Jennifer. <laughs> do you know what? I want 99.999% of the world to live happy lives, but not bloody Jennifer. Um, Luckily, the teacher ignored Jennifer, and we marched across the road, and we went to the park, and we went and sat under a willow tree. And as we're lying there, seven years old I was, and I can remember it as I describe it to you now, as vividly as if it was yesterday. I remember the grass tickling the back of my neck. I remember looking up into the fronds of the willow tree, watching them just sway ever so gently in the breeze. And I don't remember the story, but I remember Mrs. Fraser's voice as she read to us. And as a seven-year-old child, I thought to myself, and how profound is this? Life just isn't going to get any better than this. And then we grow up. And we stop lying under willow trees and letting the grass tickle our necks and appreciating the tomba or voice of the people we love and respect around us. And where does it go? And here's why I've, why I've called this talk, Find the Spaces. Hashtag, get it trending, get it trending. Hashtag, find the spaces. Hashtag, Richard Gerber. Hashtag, he was great. I know that coming here today, most of you have absolutely no idea who I am. And that's fine, that's great. But what I've done, you will notice in the few minutes I've got left with you, I'm going to name drop twice in an effort to impress you. You might not know who I am, but I want you to know that I hang with famous people and that should be enough. <laughs> and also that this hand has shaped their hand. And that means that I have famous DNA on my hand because I've never washed it. And if you want to come up to me later, I haven't got any books to sign, but you can touch it. <laughs> and this is the first of them. And I know you're looking at him thinking, Richard, we haven't got a clue. And I'll tell you who this is. And my guess is when I tell you his name, you still won't know who he is. This is Sebastian Foucault. Now, Sebastian is the founder of parkour, or free running. He is very cool. How many of you have seen the original Daniel Craig, James Bond film, Casino Royale? Just put your hands there. I won't ask you to do anything. 
Do you remember the open sequence where Bond's chasing a bad guy over buildings and cranes? So the bad guy is Seb, right? That's how cool he is. I first met him, and I'll tell you about it in a minute, in, in a city called Yekaterinburg in Russia. And um, I went home and told my wife that I'd met Sebastian Foucault. Like in, in a moment, I was hoping that she'd take me to the bedroom or something, you know. Oh, you know Sebastian, let's go now, Richard. It's not your birthday, but hell. Um, anyway, so I said, Sebastian, she went, I've no idea who you're talking about. I said, YouTube him. Now, you are not allowed to do this now. Wait until the next session. <laughs> so she did, she used it, and we're sat on the sofa at home, and she's tapping away, and then all of a sudden, and I know what you're like, ladies, I know the signs. She emitted this low-level, almost imperceptible groan. She went, hmm. <laughs> and then she said, how well do you know this, Sebastian? <laughs> and I said, well. And she said, well enough to invite him over for dinner. And I said, well, maybe. She said, you don't have to be here. <laughs> so I'm with Seb in Russia, right? We're in this city called Ekaterinburg, which is infamous because it's the city where the Tsarina and their children were slaughtered at the end of the Russian Revolution. And it's an, a beautiful city steeped in history. And actually, you can see the architecture, the history of the city through its architecture. So you see the kind of um, extraordinary richness of the pre-communist era. And then you see the functionality of the communist period. And now what you're seeing is an explosion in creativity and innovation and newfound confidence as this new incredible architectural wonder gets built in the arc and history of this city. And on our day off, Seb and I are walking along together. And I'm holding his hand. Not because I love him, but I don't want him leaping onto the bloody buildings because I'm not following him. And we get back to the hotel and we sit in the bar and I have a beer and he has a glass of water because his body is a tempo. And I said to him, I said, isn't this a magnificent place? He said, what do you mean? I said, the buildings, the city, isn't it extraordinary? He said, Richard, honestly, I don't know. He said, the thing is that since I was a child, I've never looked at buildings. He said, but I ask you something. Have you ever taken time in an urban landscape rather than looking at the buildings, to look at the spaces between them. He said, because the spaces between buildings are beautiful. And he said, and that's where parkour came from. He said, as a child, I grew up in a really tough neighbourhood just outside Paris. It was an immigrant community, and it was a place where all we saw were concrete buildings, tall tower blocks, and he said, you know, when we escaped to this place, most of us, that was the limit. To most of us, it felt like a prison. To a lot of my contemporaries, living to be 18 would have been a success. And really, we had no aspiration. It was just to be there in this place and survive within the walls of this prison, these concrete walls of the tower blocks. He said, and I don't know how old I was, maybe seven or eight. And he said, one day I was just sat on this space in the centre of these buildings, and I noticed for the first time in my life 
that there were spaces between them, tiny, tiny cracks of light, but they were there. And then as a child, as children do, he said, I started to imagine what lay through those gaps in the buildings. Where would they take me? And so as a child, I started to imagine those places. And then, as I got a little older and a little more confident, I actually started to explore the spaces between the buildings. And you see, that's parkour. If you say to Seb, it's an amazing sport, he'll punch you. Because as far as he's concerned, parkour, free running, is not a sport. It's a state of mind. It's a spiritual place of being. And as he was talking, I was thinking to myself, you know what, he summed it up. Because for most of us, we obsess with the buildings. For most of us, we look at the buildings and we never see the spaces. How often do you spend time with people who say to you things like, do you know what, I've always wanted to, but wouldn't it be brilliant if we could, but how about, but no, we can't, of course, because building, 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 building. And maybe that's the truth of all of this. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's just when we leave here and drive or train our way home through Birmingham, we just start to spend a little bit more time looking at the spaces between the buildings. Because going back to my pure joy of being a primary school teacher and having the privilege to hang out with kids of four and five years of age, one of the things I have explored from day one is where does it go? Because kids don't see the buildings, do they? They see the spaces between them. Have a think about that. Every one of you will have seen that picture before. Can you put your hands up if you're parents, if you have kids of your own? By the way, just as an experiment, how many of you have teenage kids? It's why you've given up Saturday, right? Um, in fact, you'd be here all weekend if you could. Um, I know I would too. I'm waiting for my wife to phone me to tell me that my son's off to university, he's just taking his A-levels. I'm hoping she'll phone me in the next few weeks, say he's going to university. I'll go home for the first time in 18 years, it'll be fantastic. Anyway, we've seen this picture at home as well as you. You know when you come home from work and you're knackered, and your little darling's been like this, at the, literally on the kitchen table, and they, you arrive at the front door and they turn, you turn up at home and they come to meet you. And they go, Daddy, look what I've done. And you go, darling, that's beautiful. Honestly, I've read the parenting books. I know about the encouragement. That's beautiful. That's so gorgeous. Now, you can tell a lot about your kids by how this conversation develops. Because we used to have a phrase in our house, and you can have it for free. We used to say to our kids, is it fridge gallery ready? Isn't that lovely? You can have it for nothing. There it is. There, there. Please, just feel the love. Um, now, my daughter, 23, she's actually just finishing her first year as a teacher. And um, she's knackered, by the way. <laughs> and we're going, get used to it, love. This is how it works here. Um, are positive people. Anyway, when she was a little girl, she was so deeply conscientious, emotionally intelligent. You know, she was one of those kids. And we'd say to her, is it fridge gallery ready? And she'd look at it and do that thing and go, maybe not, Daddy, I'll go and do a bit more. Now, my son, on the other hand, who's 18, the one I've just talked to you about, I'm telling you now, he is either going to be a millionaire or in prison. 
Because what he would do to respond to this, you'd go, is that fridge gallery ready, darling? You'd go, yep, and here's another 10 you can have as well. Plaster the bloody fridge, right? Anyway, all of that's fine. And then you get to the second question, and this is where things start to flip for us, right? Because what happens next, having done it, it's beautiful. We go, what is it? Now, something really interesting happens in our psyche at that point, because for the first time in our lives, we start to think that things can only be of value if somebody else tells us it is. We start to believe that our life journey is about fulfilling other people's agendas. And it starts to develop really rapidly. You know, I don't know. I don't know how you percentage this, but I understand and love the sentiment because apparently, we learn somewhere between 70 and 75% of everything we learn in our lifetime before we're five. Now, I'm talking about stuff. I'm talking, you think about the complexity here. Most of us are lucky enough to learn to walk and talk, to understand body language, facial uh, expression, vocal intonation. We start to make sense of the sensory world around us. We learn. At, 0 to 5 is like that on the learning graph. 5 to 11, 11 to 16, 16 to 18, 18 to death. What happens? Where does it go? Because that's actually not just about learning, is it? It's actually about life's adventure. Like an eye in the light, we close down the aperture the older we become. And maybe that's what we need to think about. Have a look at this. This is beautiful, isn't it? This is taken from a book that I think you should all buy. I'm not on commission. It's not my book. It's called Earth from the Air. And it's filled with images like this. And I often do this exercise with adults and kids. And it's really interesting to see the difference. I recently did it with a room full of bankers. That's bankers. <laughs> anyway, I said to them, what is it? And then I said to them, and before you answer, I'm going to come around the room randomly and I'm going to pick one or two of you to come out to the front and tell your colleagues what you think that is. Well, you know what happened to the vibe in the room, right? People started looking at their shoes as if to say, oh, I'm wearing those ones today. <laughs> Some people in the room just looked anywhere but at me and one or two of the really bolshy ones, they looked right at me to say, go on, primary school boy, pick me, you'll know how it feels. But the thing is, as adults, we become obsessed, particularly if we're going to have to share an idea with a room full of peers, that we have to be right. Think about the anxiety that we live with in our professional contexts every minute of every day. And what happens is, therefore, we start to scramble around for the logic. We want the answer. So we start to apply the currency of clever that we've all been taught about. And we go... Logic, that's where I've got to go here, because at least if I come up with the right answer, I don't look stupid. So we go brown, land, blue, water, green, algae, pollution. Hold on, I think it might be sulfurous. Yep, I definitely think this is sulfurous, because that looks like the residue of a larval flow, and there's a hot spring. And I know you're not close enough to see, but there is a walkway, and on the walkway, there are people in shorts and t-shirts. So I'm now applying logic, and if I'm a pub quiz team, or I'm the posh kid that's been there on holiday, I will know that that is Yellowstone National Park. Now, my favourite answer from a room full of five-year-old kids was, 
It's the face of an evil wizard. Brilliant. Some of you now are doing that thing, you're the magic eye thing. I can't, I don't, I'm not. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's that art of possibility, right? But here's the thing, you take it on to level two and you say to that room full of bankers, right, in your little tables, because they were cafe style, are you going to give you 60 seconds to come up with a story? We've set it up, we've got 60 seconds now, come up with a story based on how you feel about that picture. Right, you're in your groups, in the 60 seconds you also have to choose a volunteer to come to the front, tell the rest of the room the story. Again, you know what's going to happen. 59 seconds, they argue over who's going to be the person that comes to the front of the room. Because they all care and care deeply about each other, on second 60, they push some poor bugger out the group up front, go, go on, tell them whatever you want, we'll pretend we talked about it. Adults don't want to do it. That same group of five-year-olds that said about the evil wizard also said this. There is an evil wizard, but you can't see him. They're out the top corner of the photograph. But the evil wizard's trying to suck all of the colour out of the earth. And the people on the bridge, they're brave soldiers. And it's their job to stop the world from becoming black and white. Hmm, let's have another one. Isn't that remarkable? Where does that go? Because that's what we've got to find. Very quickly for you. For those of you who want to know the answer, that's date drying in the Cairo Basin. My favourite response from a group of infant kids, that group of people are building a duvet for a giant. So maybe it's about this, right? It's about having the courage to take risks and make mistakes. You know, in the 20 years or so that I was an educator, one of the things I've learned more than anything else is this. You learn nothing new by getting something right. You only ever learn something new from the point of a mistake or the realisation you don't know something or you can't do something. Happiness is not about living a life where everything is perfect and working. Happiness comes from the courage and confidence to get stuff wrong, knowing that you have the ability to bounce back from it and learn from it. Too many people avoid happiness because they're too scared to dive in, make mistakes. And they're not playing with enough poker chips. So one of the first things for me is, if you know people who aren't happy, Look at them and say, are they playing with enough poker chips? Because the poker chips come from self-esteem, right? It's really interesting, when I do work with athletes, look at me, you can tell. Um, one of the things that's fascinating is some of the most talented athletes in the world never make it to adult highest level ever, the most talented. Why? Because as kids, they grow up being better than everybody else. They've never failed, they've never struggled. And then suddenly, they get into an environment where they're surrounded by people who are as bright, if not brighter, than they are at that sport. They're as gifted, if not more gifted. And for the first time, they're set a problem they can't necessarily find a solution to. And they don't have enough poker chips because they've never failed and they haven't built the poker chips to gamble more. And so they walk away. It's no accident, for example, that in the last 15 years, Oxford and Cambridge universities have quadrupled the number of psychiatrists on site because those super high-performing students are suddenly surrounded by people as clever, if not cleverer, and also they're being set problems which are deliberately to challenge their intellect and to break them, and they can't cope. So as we think about moving forward from today, think about A, how many poker chips are you playing with? And think about those people you love and respect 
and ask yourself how you can build the poker chips in them. Because it's only when you've got the poker chips you're actually in the game. You're prepared to bet on red or black or odd or even, or even single numbers. Because only then are you going to have the courage to be happy. And I'm running out of time and I promised Shoni I'd finish at half past, so I'm going to. And I'm going to finish with a mic drop moment. This is it for me. What I'm about to do is tell you about the number one person I've met in my life. I'm going to drop the mic, you're all going to go ooh, and then you're going to send me off the stage to a standing ovation and rapturous applause. That's how this is going to work. So this week, last year, genuinely, you know how we all have a list of people we'd love to meet? You know, you're like 5'10". You know that conversation which is more difficult you have with your partner. I call it the laminated five. That's a different conversation. Um, <laughs> this is the number one person on my list. And I had the unbelievable privilege to work with him this week last year. And I'm telling you now, it was the proudest. But I honestly could have given up that point. I'm happy. Because this week last year, I got to hang out with him. I want to say about this meeting and this picture. First of all, isn't it amazing how many chins a beard hides? <laughs> and secondly, look how happy he is to see me. <laughs> and I want to leave you with one thought. We talked about a number of things, but there's one thing that really struck me that I want to leave with you. He said, you know, Richard, when I look back on my eight years in the White House, oh my God, when I look back on my eight years of the White House, he said, what I realise, what I've come to realise is this, that virtually none of the challenges and problems that crossed my desk, just think about that for a minute, the problems that crossed his desk. He said, none of the problems that crossed my desk were technical by nature. They were all about human beings. They were about love, jealousy, hate, anger, tribalism. And you know what? Maybe that's the simple answer to the cup of coffee. The cup of coffee is if we're all looking for happiness in something technical, in structures and systems, in books, in other people's words and work, maybe we're looking in the wrong place. Because to me, it's a very simple thing. It's about you, me. It's about us, and the answer is in here. Thank you very much indeed. Hiya, it's Charlotte who does Jeanette's podcasts. Just interrupting your podcast listening just for a quick moment. Uh, that was a quite visual ending for Richard Gerver's uh, talk, wasn't it? And if you weren't there, you will have... N maybe an inkling of who the person he met was. The clues were White House and eight years. It's only President Barack Obama. I know. I think he's BFFs with Obama, which made my conversation with Richard even more fun.
So when I was on stage, I was talking a little bit to people about finding the spaces in their lives, um, which is really based on the story I told about a dear friend of mine, uh, Sebastian Foucault, who, as well as having the sexiest name alive, most people won't recognize until I tell you that he was the founder of parkour free running. Um, he's actually super sexy. Uh, he was in the opening sequence of Daniel Craig's first James Bond film, Casino Royale. He was the guy being chased over buildings and cranes. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, and for those of you that weren't here to hear it today, tough. Um, basically, Seb discovered parkour when he was a child living on a really tough housing estate in Paris. He came from an immigrant family, um, and they were surrounded by concrete and tower blocks. And everyone in that community basically felt like they were in prison right? Survival was the only mode. If they lived to be 18, they'd done well. Anyway, Seb was about seven or eight years of age and started to notice the gaps between the buildings, those little cracks of sunlight between the buildings. And his imagination started to run away with himself. And he started to think, I wonder what's through the cracks. I wonder what would happen if I could find a way around the buildings. And that's how parkour and free running began. And that's really been the key message of what I've talked about today. So find the gaps and find the cracks. Absolutely right. Yeah, there it is. Right, because so many of us spend so much of our time looking at the buildings. In other words, how many times do you hear people say, you know, I'd love to, but wouldn't it be brilliant if we could, but that's where I want to go, but. And of course, the real challenge is to find those spaces because they're always out there. They might be small. It's to begin that journey. And it's just to have the courage to start heading for the light. This might sound like an odd question. How did you get into happiness then? That's a great question. Because if I was at home right now, my wife would be going, he hasn't, he's a grumpy <laughs> bastard. Um, I don't think I've ever been, happiness is, is not really um, the label I would give. I've always been fascinated as a former primary school teacher and school principal with the remarkable energy and creativity and can-do attitude of kids under five. And so my entire life has been about understanding where does that go and what can we do to reverse engineer it. So I guess really my entire thing is about how can we be better at living a life more like a five-year-old. And how can we then? Well, I think the first thing is to understand that the key is we stop trusting ourselves. We stop trusting our own instincts um, and we start doubting, self-doubting. And then what happens is we start to believe that things can only be of value or are correct if somebody else tells us they're of value or they're correct. And so one of the really important things is really one of the key messages and themes that's come through the festival today is to trust yourself and realize that the future for you, your happiness, your well-being, your sense of purpose doesn't lie in other people, in other people's judgments, in other people's systems or strategies. It lies deep within you. And if we can discover that little bit of self-confidence we had as a four-year-old toddler, build Building, building blocks, watching them fall over, giggling and building them again, then we've all got a better future. So essentially, we all need to stay four and a half. Absolutely. Do you know, I was, <laughs> a few years ago, I was hired by a very, very um, well-known um, tech, uh, tech company, actually in film production and sound. And uh, the chief executive wanted to go out for lunch with me before the big 
uh, gig, the big event, just to talk me through his issues. And he was sharing this insight with me. He said, you know, Richard, we're very lucky. Our profile means we get to hire some of the most brilliant people on earth. They come into our company, he said, but our greatest frustration is that none of them appear to have the ability to think for themselves and be creative and take risks. <laughs> and I very helpfully turned around to him and said, and God, at this point, he must have regretted signing the contract for the big bucks. Because all I said to him was, well, stop hiring anyone over five then. So yeah, we need to think more like kids again. Do you think the problem is we're not allowed to think like kids anymore? Because I, I suppose you're told to act, act like an adult, time to grow up, it's act your age, not your shoe size. Do you know, I think that's absolutely right. But one of the other themes that you hear from people like Dr. Andy Cope is, um, you know, that, that why are we keeping waiting to be given permission to do stuff, right? What we need to do is have greater confidence in ourselves and our ability to shake our universe. And that means we shouldn't keep asking and keep waiting. And the other thing is we become obsessed once we get to a certain age too. And one of the other things I talked about in my session, we become obsessed with the belief that things can only be of value if they're complicated. And again, one of the big things for me is a world for a five-year-old kid is beautifully simple, right? And actually, that's what we need to remember. We need to stop obsessing in the belief that everything has to be complicated in order to be of value, that the only way we can prove we're clever or successful is to have complex stuff around us. And to remember that actually that five-year-old perspective of why is the sky blue just because it is, the ground's brown, I love those bricks, I'm going to build with them, and who cares what anybody thinks? That's what we need more of. How do we do that then? Well, I think the first thing is to remember that this isn't grandiose. What we mustn't do is believe the answers lie in complex system structures, books, um, videos, endless podcasts. They're all great, right? They all, and I know it, they're, they're, they're all great and they're all really helpful. But the truth is it lies in you and, and you can keep galvanizing and getting as much uh, momentum as you can from other people but you have to take that first step you know as Seb would say you have to try and negotiate the first gap in the first building and when you do and it can be small it can be a small thing like for example you know we're, we're dreadful at being habitual as adults you know we eat the same food every time we go to the same restaurants we only go and see the films we know we're gonna like we only read books that we think we're gonna like you know we only as we get older hang out with people we've always hung out with and actually sometimes it's just shaking it up a little bit you know for example go to a new restaurant order something different off the menu go to a movie that you absolutely don't believe you're going to enjoy because it's just not you and those little habitual changes because what happens is these things you experience those things you go, actually it wasn't so bad in fact that was absolutely brilliant I'm going to do that again. And the thing about positivity and happiness is that it's addictive and you have to start that addiction somewhere. So just walk towards the light and through the gap in the building just one time. And I promise you soon you'll be leaping across the landscape. How has doing this changed your life then? For me, I think the, the really important thing is to understand that I feel of value 
Um, you know, I think you can describe that everybody has this moment in their lives. Some when they're very young, some when they're older. I had a very challenging and tough childhood. Um, it was riddled with all kinds of personal issues. Um, and, you know, for many years I didn't like myself. I became a teacher only because I fell in love with a young woman who was training to be a teacher. And she introduced me to, to that world. That's a whole nother podcast and a whole different story. Um, but as that journey developed... I think I was probably about 30, and I'm 50 now, that I suddenly stood in front of a mirror one day and realized that I was content because I was happy in my own skin. It fitted, I felt of value, I felt of purpose. And most importantly, that meant I felt I was um, something to somebody which gave me a great deal of self-esteem and therefore the courage to just trust myself and go for stuff. It's quite scary for people who've never been able to do that though to actually take that first step and go actually i i am okay i can do i'm going to believe in what i've done because it's never happened before mm -hmm. how, how, you know if someone is sitting there they're, they're poised how do you take that first step well again for me it's just challenge yourself in a tiny tiny step you know the problem is when we hear from people like me or we hear from people that seem to have got it sorted it seems such a gargantuan leap for most of us that you know we're sat there and so many good good people are scared by their own shadow what you just have to do is is order that new thing off the menu go and see that movie that you've never seen before and because really the game is about building poker chips, right? You've got to have poker chips to get in the game. Learning, development, uh, change throughout your life um, relies on you having enough self-esteem to take risks. Because the key is nobody ever learns anything new by getting something uh, by getting something right or doing what you've always done. The only time you learn something new is from the point of a mistake or the realization you don't know something or you can't do something. So just have a go. Right? Right? And the other thing is, remember that to get to a level where you see these really sorted people, they're carrying bagfuls of poker chips around with them. And all of us only start with one. So just bet a little bit on red or black or odd or even. And the first time you come up, suddenly you'll have two and then you'll have four and then you'll have eight and so on and so on. Start small, gamble tiny and just allow yourself to luxuriate in that first win and the rest will take care of itself. It has been the most unbelievable day. And for anybody out there listening to this, if and when the team put this together again in 2020, I don't care what you do. Do not procrastinate. Come along because it will change your life. If you've liked listening to this, why not buy a ticket? Pop along to www.spreadthehappiness.co.uk and find out when our next annual happiness festivals are. And also, why don't you drop a review, why don't you subscribe, and why don't you rate us? That would make me extra happy! Thanks for listening! See you on the next one!